Hello and welcome back to Autopsy of a Horror Movie. My name is Brucker and today on the show I am joined by Jeremiah Kipp to discuss his Shudder exclusive movie, Slapface. Slapface is a horror monster movie that is about abuse, how it's passed down from generation to generation, and its cyclical nature. Jeremiah Kipp was an absolute delight to speak with and I loved hearing how this movie was made and all the stuff that went on, on set and he told some good stories about how he made his actors feel more comfortable and how he directs child actors versus adult actors and everything it was just a very cool and eye-opening discussion I got to have with him and besides just hearing the filmmaking process on this I went ahead and took a stab at my own interpretations and readings of this movie, especially what Virago, the monster of this movie, stood for. So I kind of threw my theories at him and saw what stuck to the wall, and it was a lot of fun just dishing about that. There are spoilers in this discussion, so you have been warned, but maybe stick around for the interview if you're on the fence and see if you want to check out the movie after listening to him talk about it. All right, without further ado, spoilers ahead, and enjoy this interview with Jeremiah Kipp. Well, I'm so happy to be sitting down with Jeremiah Kipp, writer director of the new Shutter movie Slap Face. Hello, Jeremiah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, Brecker. Thanks for having me on. Well, first off, congratulations on getting Slap Face released on Shutter. Uh, how's that experience been? Well, Shutter is the perfect home for our movie. I, well, first of all, I just love the programming. You know, there there are many films on Shutter that I've enjoyed, and you've interviewed some of the directors, like uh, Natasha Kermani's uh, film Lucky and Nor Uncle with the Nightmare Wakes, and you know, there's the, the they just had a film on there not long ago called uh, The Last Thing Mary Saw, and so they you know they they have a really diverse set of programming, so you can like one day be watching the most gory slasher movie, and the next day be watching like a real slow burn, mm-hmm. character driven. Uh, builds to a tragedy, you know, nightmare. Uh, and, I, and I'm I'm for it. You know, I, I love horror movies and I always have, and I like many, many different kinds of horror movies. So for Slapface to be on that platform, it's very much a dream come true because I think they have excellent taste. Um, and I'm proud to be in the company of so many other talented films and filmmakers. Oh, I love that answer. Yeah, yeah Shudder does have such a wide variety of things and you explained it pretty well. Br- pretty brutal slashers. Uh, even like you know big gems you know like texas chainsaws on yeah. there but i love some like their hidden gems that's on there too like haunt from 2019 that's oh, uh, yeah love that but yeah and you said there's lots of good slow burns on there and slap face i think is kind of one of those like you said character driven we'll, i guess we'll start off with what's kind of your your entry point to horror what what kind of got you into the genre if you are a horror fan i am a horror fan i love horror movies i have ever since i was little I grew up in a very rural part of Rhode Island with my grandparents, and uh, they were pretty lenient about the stuff that I was allowed to watch. So, you know, when I was a little kid, I'm watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Dawn of the Dead, and I really delighted in those movies. I I made a direct connection between Texas Chainsaw 74 and Grimm's Fairy Tales. I thought there was really no difference between Hansel and Gretel you know, finding the gingerbread house and they're going to get boiled in a pot by a witch who's going to eat them with Leatherface and his cannibal family. So, like, for me, it wasn't a stretch. I wasn't scared of 
Texas Chainsaw. Like I was fascinated by it. I thought that it was like, you know, that podcast evolution of horror, like it started calling TCM 74 folk horror. Uh, but yeah, I was a little, I also loved all the John Carpenter movies. I loved the thing. Halloween really scared the hell out of me. That was the first one that I remember like <laughs> making me like run and hide in under my covers in the bed. And it was just like the TV version of Halloween. But when, when Michael Myers was attacking Laurie Strode in the closet, uh, and he's like reaching in and she hits him with the coat hanger, it was too much for me. I had to run away and hide. I was, I was terrified for the next week that Michael Myers was going to get me. Uh, <laughs> But um, all all those films delighted me. You know, I I thought that they were fantastic. And being a little little boy with a vivid imagination, walking around in the woods and imagining creatures living out there, horror films felt like uh, you know they they felt like comfort food to me. I just gobbled them up. Like when when I watched Dawn of the Dead, who wouldn't want to live in a shopping mall and have it all to yourself? Right. Uh, all that stuff was super fun. And that hasn't changed. Like every, you know, every decade of my life, there's new, interesting genre films being offered. I and mean, even in the 90s, when people said that there was a, a lull in the genre, you know, you still had Candyman back in 1992, which is Great, hugely maybe. important film for me. Like huge, huge reference for the um, is it real, is it not of, um, of Slapface. Because one of the things I loved about that movie uh, when I saw it in the theaters, I was in college when I saw it. Um, you wonder if Candyman is real or, or if Helen is cracking up, like, because she's got so much going on in her life, her marriage, her, her marriage is fracturing mm -hmm. and she's, you know, clearly obsessed with like digging into this urban legend. And it's like, is it because she's going batshit or because Candyman is real? And the movie plays with the audience. Like uh, you don't even see Tony Todd for the first 45 minutes. Right. There's like another Candyman that is introduced before him, which is a guy pretend he was taken a, a gang leader who was taken on the name Candyman. So like it's it does have a Hall of Mirrors effect watching that film where you, you you're wondering what is real. And then Scream came out that decade too, which was like one of the first wonderful. I mean, maybe not the first, but like a, a big popular uh, postmodern movie that was commenting on all the stuff that had come before, which I found really delightful. Mm -hmm. um, and even this decade, you know, there'd been so, like, well, even this decade, there've been so many great movies this decade that, uh, that I loved. I mean, there are so many, you know, art horror, art horror films like the Babadook and the witch most, more recently, like Rose glass made an incredible film called St. Maud and Remy Weeks made a, that Netflix movie, uh, his house, which used immigration as a, you know, using the haunted house as a metaphor for um, immigration and and being trapped. Um, so it's been throughout my entire life. I've loved the genre. It's been a great companion to me. Uh, and I think that 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 when you look at horror movies and monster movies as metaphors, it can help you to you know just like look at some of the harsher realities of our daily life. You know, when we 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 would have a really hard time watching the film of someone dying of AIDS or dying of cancer in moment to moment mm -hmm. detail, but watching Jeff Goldblum turn into a gigantic fly, there's a distancing device that enables us to watch the movie and experience the tragedy of that film, uh, which is a wonder, you know, I think horror movies can tap into that reality plus, which is all the things that we think and feel like stretched to a grotesquery uh, and something I've always admired about the genre and loved about it and horror fiction too. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh yeah. Was, it's my, it's my favorite novel and certainly a direct 
inspiration for uh, Slapface. You know, I loved watching A Nightmare Wakes because it was about Mary Shelley's conception of uh, of Frankenstein. Nora, Uncle, made such a terrific independent film. Mm-hmm. And with Slapface, one of the genesis points of the story was um, in the middle of the novel, there's a great section where the monster is circling a farmhouse and imagining the lives of the people inside. And I thought, like, that would make an interesting film. Who are those people inside? And I started collecting elements of my grandfather's story because he was chased by bullies who were indeed three little girls from the neighborhood who would chase him and throw rocks at him. Mm. And one of them would always circle around and say, uh, you're my secret boyfriend, kiss me, but don't tell anyone or we'll beat you harder. You know, and uh, and his father played the game of slap face with him, which is the title of the movie, which is a, a kind of ritualistic punishment game where like if, if the little kid behaves badly, then the parental figure will be like, all right, we're going to hit each other as hard as we can uh, because I want I want you to feel the pain that you cause and I want you to cause the pain to me. So it's this weird, sadistic, masochistic thing. Right. All of those autobiographical elements from my grandfather's life were finding their way into this narrative and suddenly it became, you know, not just a riff on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but its own animal, you know, its mm-hmm. own story about this family inside this house and the creature gradually evolved to from Frankenstein's monster into something closer to the Grimm's fairy tales that I connected with Texas Chainsaw Massacre earlier. And indeed we have a a witch with a with a old crone witch face on top of a Frankenstein like body. So it creates a dysmorphic effect of like the old Disney witch, but like with a body that is stretched uh like seven feet tall, which is which I thought was really uh unnerving. And, and brought together monsters from my childhood that I loved because I loved Frankenstein's monster so dearly and wanted that creature to be my friend. And, uh, <laughs> and, the, and the Grimm's fairy tale witch I always found uh, unnerving, um, but also had weird sympathy, probably because of Texas Chainsaw 74. Like, I remember the scene where Leatherface has killed one of the young people, and then he runs to the window and, like, looks out. He's like, where are they coming from? And then he sits, and he's, like, so frightened. Like it's a it's a strange home invasion movie at that point. If you're mm-hmm. looking at it from Leatherface's perspective, where are they coming from? And it created a weird sympathy for the monster that really separated Texas Chainsaw from other slasher movies of that time. And I really liked that. Wow. Well, I love that answer. There's so many things there that I do see in Slapface that you mentioned. Some of the things that. Uh, you said that were kind of imprinted on you when you were kind of growing up, like you said, with the 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 folklore and the fairy tale, kind of like uh, the Grimm Brothers stuff aspect of that, and a sympathetic uh, sympathetic characters, and even you know, kind of a sympathetic villain, um, Virago, the the witch in this. I yeah. kind of see her, or um, or I don't know if there's actually a gender for Virago, but I yeah, s- we yeah we say we say she her okay her, the Virago. Well, the, the the creature is played by a male actor, but it's a female character. Gotcha. Okay, so I just want to make sure I had that correct because I was like, oh, yeah. I think I think they said she, but I I knew it was a male actor, but I didn't know if there was mm-hmm. it was a importance to that. But the Virago kind of seemed kind of like a anti hero in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's. I mean, we'll definitely get into the themes of this, but uh, you know as someone watching there's not someone who created it but you know i was kind of getting um she is a manifestation of the things in a reflection of lucas and the things that um frustrate him internally in what he's been uh, going through because 
Slapface, I like how you talked about how this was kind of autobiographical for you with your uh, grandfather's story and everything. And because Slapface is definitely about abuse. And I think specifically the cycle of abuse that we get with right. that. And, um, and I love the, the little uh, text uh, that you have at the end of, of, the, of the film before the credits uh, come onto the screen. You have this little thing about, you know, uh, you know standing up against bullies and abuse and uh, it has, takes on many forms. And so I thought that was good because uh, horror is always been a genre that's been a vehicle for any sort of topic to, of discussion, whether it's commentary on society, the genre itself, and just important, you know, social things like this, uh, you know, abuse and domestic violence. And I, I was going to ask about that, you know, what uh, was kind of your inspiration in uh, just kind of, you know, your muse for wanting to tell this story through Lucas. I think that the, 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 the it was more the idea of abuse being uh, passed down from generation to generation, um, mm -hmm. and that these characters are frequently copying uh, ideas they learn from other people. So when Tom is uh, is playing slapface with Lucas, I don't think that he thinks of it as child abuse. Right. I think he thinks of it as a means for the two brothers to connect because they've been through this trauma of their parents dying. It's like, well, if we slap each other, we can wake each other up and connect in this way. Uh, because it's so hard to talk about the things that are deeply buried inside of us. I think that the characters justify their behavior uh, by saying, well, I'm not, you know, I mean, it's an act of love what I'm doing. It's like an act of parenting. Um, uh, so that's one form of abuse in the story. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when Mariah is having her uh, relationship with, uh, with Lucas, um, you know, she, she certainly talks about, like, elements in her family that might be construed as abusive or strange. But, uh, you know, also like she is in many ways, like Lucas and Mariah are doing the type of thing that people do when they're having an affair, you know, it's like, uh, they're kind of play acting, a, a, a ritual of, um, well, we have, we're, we'll be lovers, but it'll be a secret. So it's like kind of pretending to be part of an adult world. And mm -hmm. the monster also copies the behavior that she sees the human beings doing. So, uh, indeed, at one point, she is playing slap face with one of the other characters in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's other there's another sequence where it's more direct, where a character points a gun at her, and then she mimics the, the pointing and cocking of the gun with her hands. So throughout the whole movie, there's elements of, uh, of behavior being passed down generationally. And, like, mm -hmm. once we start thinking about it in that way, it's like, all right, well, then a little boy as the protagonist feels right, you know, because children are so open to the given circumstances all around them. Like Lucas, when Anna asks him, what were you guys doing back there? And he says, oh, we were just playing slap face. You know, it's like, I mean, it's, it's normalized for him in some ways. Like, even though, even if in some deep inner place, he knows that it's wrong and abusive, it's just like, it's such a pattern of behavior for them that he just accepts it. And a 12-year-old would also be able to make the imaginative leap of, uh, all right, I can make friends with this seven-foot-tall monster that I found, uh, especially when there's no other friends in sight, you know, when there's no other reliable allies in sight. You know, his older brother mm -hmm. and his girlfriend and even the sheriff are not there when he needs them to be there to protect him, but the monster does, 
you know, the monster, whenever she commits an act of violence in the movie, uh, the violence is a protective act. You know, it's like, I'm going to protect you from whatever the thing is that is coming at you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, whether the monster is a manifestation of, of, uh, well, certainly the monster is a manifestation of something, whether, whether it's in Lucas's three-dimensional reality or not. Uh, certainly like Lucas brought this thing into his existence, you know, like some, and, you know, that is the, the thing that we do with the audience is, uh, is, is Lucas imagining this monster or is the monster real and hiding from everybody else? And, uh, I, I just remembered Sesame street when nobody believes that big birds imaginary friend was real, but the audience saw Mr. Snuffleupagus all the time. And the uh, you know me as a little kid, I'm like nobody can see Snuffy. You know why won't anybody believe Big Bird? Uh, you know, so certainly a part of that is at play with Lucas and the monster, and uh, and whether the monster is real or not. I think that the tragedy at the end of the story is real, whether people believe in the monster or don't. Either mm-hmm. way, like it inexorably moves towards a conclusion that may have been inevitable whether the monster was there or not. If the monster was there, perhaps pushed it along. If the monster was not there, then, you know, then it was pushed along by inner demons in Lucas's mind. Uh, But regardless, you know, it's, uh, but both, both means reach the same end, you know? And then the, you know, the thing that we consider in the movie is like, what is more horrible? You know, I would counter that a monster that is seven feet tall is more imaginative than than ritualistically beating someone you know no right. one deserves cruelty and no one deserves humiliation uh and uh and the monster weirdly is more fun you know the monster you can imagine you can imagine having a wonderful time with that creature whereas you whereas it's hard to imagine having a wonderful time when you can't trust the person that you're with is mm-hmm. is going to be kind to you or not yeah, exactly. And I love, you know, I liked so much of that and, uh, you know, everything I had to say about abuse. And I always, I, the thing that I love about doing these interviews with the filmmakers is being able to kind of do like, well, you know, as an audience, this is kind of like what I was picking up on and seeing if like, I'm just grasping at straws and like picking up things that weren't intentional. So I kind of, if it's okay, I kind of want to play a little bit more with the, um, the manifestation stuff I was getting with Virago sure. with, uh, so, you know, watching this and cause I was getting, you know, we kind of discussed it already kind of like the theme of, you know, uh, abuse and like you said, being passed down, I was kind of also getting more of like how it's a cycle. Uh, you know, we mm-hmm. talk about like the Tom and Lucas is their father. There's, uh, you know, there's, uh, they, they allude to how he was uh, abusive and uh, Tom is just learning, you know, when he plays slap face, that's just, I guess, kind of like what you said, how he was learned to bond or, you know, mm-hmm. that's how he would do it. And slap face in its nature is cyclical. You know, you do right. it to me, you, I do it to you. Um, but with, uh, and then of course there's all the stuff with uh, Mariah um mm-hmm. and then so i was kind of so the manifestation i was getting with uh virago and that was that you know these are all the things that are hurting lucas and the things that he wishes he had like he still wished that his mom was around he doesn't necessarily wish for his dad he wishes for his mom and there's lots of uh, mm-hmm. maternal sort of things that we get from virago like they even bathe together uh, they take care yeah. of each other she tries to heal him she even tries to wear his mother's clothing at one point Mm-hmm. in this and those are the kind of things that you know maybe deep down he wishes he still had and with 
uh, Mariah, you know, he wants to just be with her. And I loved the the flower trail was the same color, the blue that's in Mariah's hair, manifesting mm-hmm. that and everything. But then getting to like the the cycle of abuse or just like violence repeating itself, you know, maybe he does have anger deep downside, but he he knows not to act on it. But Virago does it because he still has that. Mm-hmm. And so it's you know it's it's retaliation but it's still violence being met with more violence when virago does hit mariah or attempt to hit um uh tom but i love because on this show i like to talk about the types of fears that movies play off of and i love how with abuse comes a fear of shame for both the abuser and the recipient of that the right abuser you know if they do admit guilt you know them feeling shameful for hurting loved ones and we see that at least with lucas you know he he he's right. crying because he's seeing that uh Brago's about to hit tom and he's crying saying no i love right. him i wouldn't want to do that and same thing for mariah so um mm-hmm. and then of course tom kind of um uh, was he, he he declines those uh, accusations from Anna about abusing his brother and things like that. So there is shame right. there too. So um, I loved all of that from, and the stuff that you put into the script where the monster does mimic the actions of the, the people. I thought that was, that was honestly some of my favorite stuff from this was seeing that. Um, so, so that's what I was picking up <laughs> uh, <laughs> from this. So, uh, uh, so um yeah, so I don't know how much of that is just cool intentional stuff that you're like wanting to put in, or just like oh wow, like that's just. So I'm just kind of curious as to um, how much of Virago being a manifestation of Lucas's things, or is this kind of just more of like kind of like this little sponge that's just absorbing things around him, uh, her, and kind of just reflecting those things on humanity. Well, I'll answer that by saying that the. The script was uh, extremely tightly written, uh, so the um, the themes that get incorporated into the scene work is very intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I mean, I also do like to allow certain things to happen on the set. Like I, I'm very actor friendly, and I like when actors come and bring interesting ideas into the story. Um, but I think that you can only do that kind of improvisation when the script is, it's all there on the page. Like every scene was carefully constructed and thought through. And, uh, and I wasn't vague in my mind about whether the monster was real or not. I made a very conscious choice where I said, this is what is true. And I followed that all the way to the end. Uh, and I just chose not to share that uh with the audience but like when i look back at the movie it's like all right i know that all these things could happen because um because i know the reality of the given circumstances now um actors reading something on the page and then incorporating the theme into a scene is kind of interesting because i'll I'll take one scene as an example because it's a good example of uh actors understanding what the movie is about and incorporating that into the work Mm -hmm. So there's a sequence where uh, Tom is confronting Lucas. There's a bullet hole in the wall. And Tom's like, how'd that bullet hole get there? Did, were you fucking around with Dad's 357 Magnum? And, uh, and the confrontation turns very ugly. And Tom hits Lucas not even playing a slap face. He just, hmm. he just brutally bashes him. 
But then as the scene progresses, like Tom so desperately wants to connect with his brother that he pulls Lucas into a hug. Now, the hug was not scripted. That was in the middle of the take. Mike Manning, who plays Tom, was like, I just I just need my brother. I just need, you know, I, I just need him to be with me. You know, it's like this, this has gone too far. I need him to connect. So in the middle of the take and when we shot the uh, the, the widest piece of coverage, he pulled him into a hug. And after we called cut, Mike was like, is that all right? I said, oh, my God, yeah, because it did all the things that the, the movie is about. Like in the middle of this confrontation, uh, it also gets into this gesture of compassion. Mm -hmm. uh, like these characters are brutalizing each other. But I also would be lying if I said that I didn't love all of them. Right. You know, I care about all of the people in this movie is it works and all with all of their flaws, with all of their imperfections. Uh, so, you know, it, it was real testament to the actors in this movie that they understood what we were doing so well, they could add to it. Like when, uh, when the monster imitates the gesture of cocking the pistol, that was something that the actor just chose to do on take three. You know, it was just like something that Lucas Hassel said, well, why don't we try that? Oh, and, so cool. uh, and it was wonderful. It, was, it went in the movie immediately. It's like that was a really good idea. And it fits with the, the ideas of mirroring that we've been talking about. And then when we flipped the camera around to shoot Lebe Verrere, who plays Anna, she came over and whispered to me, what's he going to do during my coverage? And I was like, I have no idea. I have no <laughs> idea what he's going to do. But that's also because Lucas Hassel and I have worked together for probably 10 years. Like of all the actors in this movie, he's the one who I've had the longest mm -hmm. collaboration with. And he was involved with the project very early on. Like it was, uh, it was a feature length screenplay before it was a short film, right. proof of concept. So we would do readings of the feature just so that we could hear it out loud and then tighten up the script every time and various producers would want to hear it read and so on. And uh, I would always cast Lucas Hassel as the reader, which is the least sexy role when you're doing a screenplay reading. It's like you're reading screen directions. But I submit that you have to hire the best actor to read the screen directions because uh, that person is reading more than anyone else and telling the story to whoever is listening and making it very real for them. I would always tell Lucas that the monster doesn't speak. You have to make the monster feel very real for the audience. Mm. Anyway, after one of those readings, Lucas said to me, uh, if you ever make this as a film, I'd love to take a crack at playing the monster. Uh, and I directed him many times and knew he was a very imaginative, daring, fearless actor. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we, we, when we did the short film, he played the monster. And indeed, when we made the feature, the only actor who was able to carry over was Lucas, who once again played the monster in the feature. And it was really great because he'd had 10 years of marinating on this character. Um, and at the time, also, I hadn't worked with August Maturo, who was the 12-year-old boy that plays Lucas. I remember telling Lucas Hassel, it's confusing because the character's name is Lucas and the actor's name is Lucas. Oh. <laughs> but I told the actor, Lucas Hassel, who plays the monster, I said, look, I, I need you to be able to take care of yourself because I might need to spend all my time working with this child actor. And Lucas Hassel said, don't worry, you can count on me. But of course, as it turned out, it was it was great. You know, I'd never met August Maturo before I knew his work. Like, he's in a horror film called The Nun, which appealed to our investors because that movie made millions and millions of dollars. But I knew August's work from independent films he'd done. And he was on a TV show called Girl Meets World. And he was my top choice for the role. All of us, really, the casting director and producer Mike Manning and all, I all made our lists of actors that we love. And August was at the top of all of our lists. Uh, he was the one that we wanted. And the reason was he's extremely emotionally available. He's very grounded. He's an old soul. 
he's kind of like, you know, I, when I was in, you know, like 10, 11, 12 years old, I felt like I was in my 40s and I'm in my 40s now. And I feel like I finally grown into myself. And August was very much like that kind of person where you didn't talk down to him as a child. You talk to him as an equal and as a collaborator and as a partner. Um, and he and, you know, child actors, it's very hard for them to access grief or rage or past trauma. And August is not traumatized. He's a wonderfully well-adjusted young man, but he's able to go deep into the sensitive parts of himself and convey a lot of different kinds of feelings. And it's always been his great gift. He does it intuitively. Um, you know, like he, I don't think he analyzes how he acts. I remember one day, you know, midway through the shoot, I said, August, how do you do it? And he just described the plot of the movie. He was like, I know my character does this and this and this and this. And then I feel that. And he walks off and his mother leans over and says, he does sense memory, uh, which is basically remembering things that happen to you and replaying them when you're in the middle of a scene, uh, which I thought August was so good at. Uh, when you're making a film about violence and trauma, uh, you don't want a violent or traumatic environment. You want the most safe, respectful environment for everyone. So it's very important to say that no one was hit in the making of this movie and no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. And it's very important because I love animals and the animal actors that we had in our movie were, you know, friends, you know, the, the gaffer of the short film's dog played the dog in the movie. Oh. And I'd worked with the rat, the rat uh, wrangler, the rat king before on a music video. So these were people that I'd collaborated with before and were friends of mine. And the animals were treated incredibly well. No, no harm came to them. That's good. And we had a great stunt coordinator named Mac Kerr, who we rehearsed all of the slapping scenes and all of the bullying scenes in advance. So they knew uh, what they were going to do to one another. And it's a strange paradox of movies where the people fighting each other have to be the ones that are protecting each other the most. When they are, you know, when the bullies are beating August, they are essentially being dance partners, creating, you know, a simulation of a fight and are protecting one another from harm. Uh, but that also allows the actor to access the feelings of rage or fear or pain uh, in a safe space where like, they can act the damage that is being inflicted on them without being damaged themselves. Um, I care about that a lot because I like making films that are really dark and weird. Um, but I love the actors to be able to access those things. And the only way they can access those things is by feeling secure that no harm will come to them ever and that they're cared for and loved and appreciated and respected. I have such compassion for the bravery of actors. Uh, and this ensemble in this movie was particularly good to work with in that way. Oh, yeah. I felt like everybody had really good chemistry in this. And uh, I'm glad yeah. that you talked about uh, August. Uh, was it uh, Matt Mat Maturo? August Maturo. August Maturo. Yeah. He was great in this. And like you said, great actor. Uh, he carried the emotional weight of this. And I thought he did it very, very, very well. Um, and okay. I was going to ask you, does from you know from a director standpoint does how does your approach change if it does with directing uh children or young teens as opposed to directing adults does your approach to that change at all that's a great question i was a child actor myself so oh, cool. like i i like to I mean, i've worked with kids a lot of all different ages so like you know five-year-olds 10-year-olds 12-year-olds teenagers and so on uh in, in in this particular case on Slapface, like working with August was working with a guy who had, had a lot of experience making TV and film. So he was technically proficient. He was able to access things. And he I really treated him like a partner. I treated him like a colleague. You know, 
I didn't separate him from, I didn't treat him any differently than I treated the adult actors. And that was true for the others as well. Mirabelle Lee, who plays Mariah, came in incredibly well prepared and ready to play and able to handle the complexity of that part. And Bianca and Chiara D'Ambrosio played the twins who, who bully Lucas. And they also come from a Disney background, as did Kurt Russell. You know, I nicknamed the twins Kurt Russell because uh, Disney trained actors are like the Marines and they can parachute in and do extraordinary work. But a lot of the Disney trained kids like to do darker material because they want to explore all aspects of being a person. Mm -hmm. And Disney, while, you know, there are many great things, particularly for children about watching Disney, you know, like they're interested in exploring the soulfulness of the darker side. Uh, and all the kids in this movie were interested in that, you know, were interested in in dealing with the the strangeness of these characters. Um, and they were just smart. All these kids were really smart. And the other thing that you do when you're choosing child actors is you meet their parents. And all of the parents of these children were there on set. And, and I liked the way they talked to their children as well. Like, you know, when a parent talks to their child like a person, and not like they're talking down to somebody who is smaller than them is something I really respect and admire. Mm. Uh, I thought all of the parents on this movie gave their children a lot of autonomy and a lot of respect. So I treated them like adults, but like, you know, it was very interesting hearing producer Mike Manning because he went out with them on Halloween and he dressed up in some big onesie and August was playing Harry Potter. And oh, that's so cool. All the kids were we're running around in, in like uh, Walmart or something like that, like, you know, just going crazy in the aisles. And, and Mike was like, oh, my God, we're so used to talking to these little people like they're adults, but they are not adults. They're children. And he and while he was watching them playing, uh, he was like, oh, yeah, we mustn't forget that they are really young and really little and like have ch ch child, a child's instinct and a child's desire to play. They are not adults. Like even though they, um, even though they're extremely smart and extremely mature and able to tackle the difficult subject matter, and were treated with such professional courtesy and love and respect, it's like they are still children, and that's something I kind of forgot about while we were making the movie because I always treated them like my peers, uh, and Mike got the opportunity to see them as as little kids, which, you know, I'm really I was really touched when I heard that story, and it reminded me, oh yeah, they are really little people. Mm -hmm. And they have so much, you know, they have so much growing to do. Wow, that that's such a compliment to them. That's and it's cool to hear yeah. that. You know, um, I like liked your approach too about like you know picking these kids that have some sort of background. And that's that's I've also never thought of it that way with the Disney actors mm -hmm. of them wanting to pivot and go. Okay, I, I I need to do something that's not sugar fairy clouds and go into you know uh, let's get yeah. into some dark themes um very cool very cool yeah it, all of them i thought did really well i did have a quick question about the twins were sure. they twins in the yeah. script or did you just find them you know, okay i i want them in the movie you know mike manning knew them the producer he said how do you feel about donna and rose being twins because they initially were not uh and then i looked at the work of bianca and chiara he'd worked with them on a on a Emmy award-winning web series called The Day. Uh, and uh, I saw their work and I was like, they're great. You know, they're going to be fantastic as uh, as these bullies. And the, weirdly, the way that Mike met Bianca and Chiara was at uh, an event called Boo for Bullying. Mm. So they're, you know, Bianca, Chiara, and Mike are all extremely uh, anti-bullying. And it's very important for them. So Bianca and Chiara liked the idea of playing the force in the world that they 
want to reflect against. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought that was a really great reason for them to play this part and do this movie. The hardest thing for the children to do, actually, was August and Mira, uh, who play Lucas and Mariah, had to kiss a couple of times in the movie. And that was something where a 12 year old, it was like, oh, my God, I got to kiss. This is the worst. I'd rather go deal with the monster. <laughs> I know. It was really interesting because first thing they said was uh, they demanded a closed set, which means that essential crew only. They said the parents could not be there. Uh, and then, you know, so we did all we, we, we did all of that, you know, it's like, it wasn't an indulgent request. It was like the thing that helped them feel safe. Right. Um, but then they were still nervous. So I turned to the director of photography. We lined up this two shot where, uh, you know, August and Mira were supposed to meet and kiss during the shot. And I was like, Dom, I saw how nervous they were. They were practically trembling, having to kiss somebody who had become their friend. So I said, Dom, you and I have got to walk over and hit those marks and kiss each other in front of these kids. So they know it's okay to kiss your friend. So Dom and I marched onto the marks, kissed each other on the lips, walked back and said, see, it's fine, you know? And they laughed and thought it was funny. And then they realized it was okay. They're like, yeah, you're just playing make-believe. You're playing make-believe kissing your friend. So we did, you know, they said, can we, you know, we'll do it if we, you know, if only if we can do it once. And I was like, well, probably have to do it twice because I like to do two <laughs> takes, you know, just a safety take. What if there's a problem with the digital media, if there's a glitch, mm -hmm. you know? So we did it twice. And, you know, they were good sports about it once they realized that everything was okay and they weren't going to get made fun of. Right. They weren't going to get cooties and nothing bad was going to happen. And if it was okay, if it was okay for Dom and I to kiss each other, it was okay for them to kiss each other. Because Dom and I have been friends for like 12 years and have worked together for <laughs> a really, really, really long time. I love that story. That, that's a great way to to approach that. And Because, I mean, if I were 12, I would hate doing that. I mean, that would... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so that's, that's such a cool story cool thank you for sharing that oh my pleasure um i did have a hold on i need to find it real quick the name of it so kind of moving away from the actors um uh, i wanted to ask sure. about the fish kill wakefield house um was yeah. this a so two it's kind of like two questions like how did you find this and the interior shots of it with Lucas exploring and finding the witch, was that a, was that a set or was that actually, did y'all actually get to film inside this, this house? Yeah. Uh, well, from the, from the very conception of it, I think every small town kind of has its creepy haunted house. When, when I was growing up in Rhode Island, Crandall house was the name of the place that was creepy. Nice. And as a little, as a little boy, uh, and even as an adult, well, I cannot confirm or deny this information. This is, uh, <laughs> I've done, this is feature number six for me. I can't confirm or deny that I've broken into buildings before to get shots for horror movies inside of creepy abandoned houses. But um, I thought that it was a real career accomplishment that we'd gone through the city council and like uh, the the locations for Slapface were vetted by them. And they, so it's like they're cleared for asbestos. You will not fall through the floorboards, you know, which was all I mean, we had all these enormous safety concerns, uh, not only because child actors are going to be walking around on the set, but like all of yeah. us, you know, we all want to be safe, like uh, safety first. We're, we're playing make-believe. So safety first has to be paramount, always more important than making a movie. Uh, but, um, but yeah, the, the city council essentially said, here are many options of creepy old buildings for you to go inside and look around. And it was really a dream come true for me because we weren't, uh, we weren't doing it guerrilla style. We were doing it like with permission. Mm -hmm. And uh, the actual location of Wakefield House was, uh, it was an institution. Uh, it was a former prison. Oh. And I think it was a prison for younger people. Uh, hmm. So it had like that, like very 
bizarre institutionalized feeling to it. Like it, it wasn't an asylum, I don't think, but it had that vibe. Yeah, institutionalized preschools, kind of like what it looks like. <laughs> right. Yeah, like combination of prison for younger people was like was what that location was, and that really spoke to us, and it spoke to the themes of the movie. But also, it's just a wonderful location. So it was not a set. You know, we we were looking. We looked at a lot of different places uh, and, and and played around the idea of like building a set for for some of it. But as it turned out, that location gave us everything. Uh, we shot there for two days, the interior and the exterior. Uh, weirdly, as as uh, the schedule would have it, we filmed there on Halloween, which was to August delight. He was so happy awesome. that on Halloween we're filming in essentially the haunted house of our story. Uh, and August delighted in that building. Like he was really curious. Like he would look around and take photos of like spiders' nests and things like that that were like that were in hiding. But yeah, all that paint peeling off of the walls and all that dilapidation was there on the location. And uh, you know, while our art department went in and like modified it slightly, you know, like the the bones of the place were all there. We didn't have to create the creepy atmosphere of that of the haunted eeriness of uh of that location yeah that was in uh, uh fishkill new york wow that's so cool i, I love that and i i wonder if that was any fun, fun at all for the council members when they're like when if they all got together like oh what are the what is what are the creepy places around here guys and they all they probably all like argued about that that's i, I like to think that they had fun with that i don't know if they did i i like to think that too because certainly the places they showed us it's like it would be illegal to just go there like under normal given circumstances, <laughs> but because but because the town said it was okay and we always had somebody with us, it was fine. And like, uh, yeah, I think that they, they did feel a little naughty, like <laughs> making it into a horror film, which, which gave me no end of delight either. If you ever end up doing a nightmare on Elm street, uh, movie that, that this also seems like a good place for that, that kind of like, you know, creepy school yard, you know, with Freddie and all that. So I was kind of getting those vibes from this place. It was, um, that was that was that was it was a very cool thing, and so I'm. It's awesome to hear they all actually got to go in there and shoot stuff. Um, oh, it's wonderful. oh man, that's so good. Yeah, so I was curious about that, and I love that kind of like how you said because it still kind of uh, bleeds into that like folklore, so sort of like a uh, like small town sort of like you know secrets about like oh you don't go there that's where like this witch lives. You you mentioned um, yeah. yours where I'm from. Um, I'm from Nashville. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, okay. And my, um, it, you know, the place I'm about to mention isn't like famously known or anything, but uh, my my grandparent, my grandpa, uh, I've talked about this before, but he, um, he loves scaring the, the grandkids and everything. Always tells like ghosts and witch stories. And there was a quarry uh, behind their house, and he always he came up with this legend of the White Witch of the Quarry. And uh, amazing. Yeah. So, uh, so as kids, you know, we always go hunting for for it in the woods and things like that. So I, I definitely. Um, so seeing all of the I love how much of this movie takes place in the woods and in the uh, that uh, the, the Wakefield house. It, it, it was super cool. Mm. And it still felt like kids because it kind of felt like I'm sure you would do this, too. But, like you know, as a kid, you would go into the woods and try to like find a cool fort, you know, like a base or whatever. Oh, without that. Yeah, and this yeah. felt like that. And I really admired how much daytime horror was in this because mm. um I mean, you know, that's there's like I don't really think there's CGI in this. I don't think, but uh, very little. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's all practical effects, and then there was like the CG like was built on top of a practical effect. So, but but like, but it was always like adding to uh, practical design, you know. So like the monster was not 
a CGI creates no practical effects, you know? And, but there was like a little bit of like CGI tinkering some of the time, but like very little, you know, it's not a CGI monster no, no, or a CGI movie. No, no, exactly. Yeah. So I love that, you know, you, you, you didn't, because it sometimes comes off a cheap when it does happen, when it mm. is just nighttime or it's dark just to hide certain things. And I'm, I'm not, uh, yeah. it's fine when that does happen, but daytime shots, and even when you're in the Wakefield house, it's still relatively bright in there. So I was like, wow. I, I Yeah, there's sunlight coming in through the window. Yeah. It's like piercing the darkness for sure. Yeah, so I was like, yeah, I think, I think evil can happen during the day or the night. Exactly. You know, I, I remember watching... I, I wasn't a little kid when I saw Last House on the Left. I was a little bit older, thank God. <laughs> you know, because that's a rough that's a rough movie like for a teenager to watch. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard, but like all the horror in that movie, like there's a big section of that movie where the horror takes place during the daytime. And I remember thinking while I was watching it that you know it's like uh, it like sin like when bad things happen, it doesn't choose you know to happen like it d during only the daytime or only the nighttime. You know, and that said, I'm very sympathetic to horror. Like Halloween, the John Carpenter film takes place at night for a reason. The right. thing is, you know, Michael Myers is hiding in the shadows and stepping out of the shadows and waits till nighttime before attacking because you can't see in the dark. Uh, but when when sinister things happen during the day, there's an ugliness to mm -hmm. it because you feel like you should be safe. You know, you should you feel like you should be safe when you can see everything around you. But when ugly things happen to you in the in the under in, in the afternoon daylight uh it's just there's a wrongness to it you know there's just the feeling that like it shouldn't it's not fair that it happens this way yeah yeah exactly and so yeah that was something that really stuck out to me i was like wow i really admire just how much daytime horror we're getting in this i thought that was super cool because mm -hmm. we don't get that too much um i <laughs> so one of the uh segments that i have on the show are you familiar with the movie cabin in the woods yeah, I love Captain. Okay, so I always like to discuss what would be a good movie prop from the film of, of discussion that we can put in the basement of the cabin in the woods that was summoned, in this case, Virago. So are there any sort of cool or little props or just items from this film that you would want to put in that basement to summon Virago? Well, what a wonderful question. Uh, the, the, the article of wardrobe that comes to mind is uh the the monster uh is wearing this really interesting long uh robe with a hood that uh that makes her blend into the woods it's very much a, a wood witch you might say like the, like the 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 cloak looks like the bark of a tree and attached to the belt is uh this uh or there's a belt with like uh, an assortment of like trinkets and toys from children of years past and I would probably say, like in the in that cabin in the woods basement, like hanging on a rack, <laughs> would be the monster's cloak with the hood and the belt. And if you and if you took it off of the if you took it off of the thing and put it on, then like you would transform into oh, the that's... into the creature. Or, or or like you know, like the the if you if you chose that item, mm. then Virago would be called upon and appear. Yeah, uh, I, I really enjoyed creating the look of the creature with Anna Davis, who was our wardrobe designer. We did many, we did many tests with her and Lucas Hassel. And uh, it was a combination of all of us coming up with ideas about what the thing would look like. So yeah, I would say 
don't don't pick up the monster's cloak. <laughs> don't play with the monster's cloak. Drawing a line in the drawing a line in the sand with the monster's cloak. Um, right. I love in the creature design of this was so good. I did love that cloak aspect and everything because it's it's minimalistic, but it like it gets the job done. It's you know you don't have to overthink it, and I, it, it feels witchy too. I love it. Um, yeah, I think I was because I was thinking about this of, of course, but uh, I think I had two things. Uh, I had two contestants for it one was just uh maybe just like a, a bundle or like a little bouquet of those blue flowers that um mm-hmm. that, that she leaves um and maybe just like having that little <laughs> vase or something uh because you know it looks mm-hmm. innocent but um and then yeah. there actually is kind of a cabin in the woods trinket in this because lucas picks up the when he goes in there for the first time into the the house he picks up that little toy soldier uh trinket right. so there kind of is yeah. one in this <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, the toy soldier or the or the bouquet of blue flowers, like either one. I would say, like if you're if you're in the cabin in the woods, stay away from all of those things. <laughs> Which will get you. Awesome. Well, um, before before we hop off, um, I just wanted to at least share some more stuff that I really loved about this movie sure. because it's it's a cool opportunity to get to speak with filmmakers and just directly tell them, hey. I loved this from from it. And I, we've already mentioned a lot of the the messaging. Always love a movie, especially a horror movie that has. Um, some sort of message behind that and all of to me what i was picking up as you know symbolism with the all like the blue flowers and the blue hair with uh, mariah and that we saw in the witch mm. but um and i love that you talked about how much of a fan you were of Candyman because that movie yeah, feels that movie. as you described it feels like a it's, a it's almost some of the scenes feel like a dream and you're not really sure if it's happening and i yeah. felt that unbalance while watching this because there were moments where that makes me happy to hear yeah because there were moments in this where i was like oh is lucas like just hallucinating or is he dreaming all this or i I was having because it really you know of course the movie ends with kind of confirming some things but uh honestly for 75 percent of it maybe 60 percent of it i was thinking there's still a possibility that lucas is hallucinating this or that he's actually doing these things when there, there is no witch or that I also thought that it's possible that the witch got has him stuck in a time loop because there was a couple of times once or twice when Luke, yeah. I'm sorry, I keep saying Luke, Lucas would just fall like we'll cut to him falling in the woods and Mariah would be there mm-hmm. and they looked pretty similar to other times we saw it. So I was just kind of wondering if I was like, oh, man, it's the witch like making him stuck in this time loop until he stands up for himself. Like, what's going on here? And then and then we, you know, we figure out it's just it's just you're just toying with us. You're just fucking with us. But uh... that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, but that does play into the cyclical nature of the storytelling, you know, which is like the things are passed down. So we did want to repeat certain visual motifs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember when we hired our composer, Barry Neely, who I really loved working with, uh, like he like what really won him to my heart was he said the theme of the film is uncertainty and that's the that's the 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 literal theme I want to explore musically when I uh when I create this, which really excited me to no end. Uh this is um this we, we there are spoilers on this yes, podcast, yes, right? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'll there, give a spoiler so, warning at the top so of this. Without without giving away the ending, like something that I did not want to do was the trope of you know, you, when you watch a movie and then it's revealed that like it was the person, you know, the other character was imagining it, and then you replay like a bunch of a montage of scenes previous where it's like, oh, all those times where it was obvious that like that other person was not there and not real, you know, or like Bruce Willis was a ghost the whole time, haha, you know, whatever. I never wanted to do anything like that, you know. It's like, uh, um, 
I don't know, like even in very good movies, I always feel like a little bit, you know, I was like, man, please don't do that to me. You know, I kind of love the, you know, I, I love the ambiguity. I, I love the sense of wondering like what is real. And I like the audience being able to fill in some stuff. So I wouldn't want at the ending of John Carpenter's The Thing for there to be the big reveal. You know, it's like what, you know, it's like that, that, that movie ends on a beautiful note of wondering mm-hmm. what's going to happen next. And, uh, and I thought that was delightful. Now, Slapface has a little bit more of a Greek tragedy finale, you know, where there is, I mean, there are elements of closure at the end, like the movie reaches a point of resolution. Uh, so there's no ambiguity in that climactic beat. But like, uh, but certainly, you know, I would prefer there to be an open discussion about the nature of the monster's reality. Um, not because I want to play a mischievous game with the audience or a trick on anybody, but because I just like that kind of movie and I'm more interested in, you know, I'm more interested in uh, the, the not knowingness of, uh, of certain things. And, and the only way you can trust the, the filmmaker is if the filmmaker knows, you know, it's like, if you feel like the filmmaker doesn't know, then there's a deliberate leaving out of information because the filmmaker was too lazy to do that work. And mm-hmm. that upsets me too. I, I don't like that kind of minimalism where you feel like, you feel betrayed because you're like, well, why didn't you think about, like, did you not think about those things? Uh, <laughs> um, but um, anyway, uh, uncertainty. That's, uh, that's one of the core ideas of Slapface. I love that. That's, I, 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 like, I love how you could like sum that up in one word, uncertainty. I think that's really good mm-hmm. for this. Um, before we hop off, Jeremiah, I want to say thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking you. with you. And like I said, I do love how, the, this movie ends before the credits of having this nice little uh, text about you know how you and the people behind this movie really do not stand for or stand against or you, you stand against uh, bullying and any sort of sort of um, um, what am I trying to say abuse. Is there any advice you could give someone that is possibly stuck in some sort of cycle or it feels like they're being put down by people that they like? You have friends. Uh, you have friends, you know, uh, even if they are not visible to you right now, uh, do hang in there, you know, because, um, the world is big and wide and filled with very strange and interesting people. Uh, and you will find your community, uh, community who loves and cares about you. Uh, and if you're in the, in that despairing place, uh, of, what feels like never ending endurance, just try to hang on a little bit longer. You will find people who will listen to your story and who care about you. Uh, and I would leave that to anybody listening. Well, thank you, Jeremiah, for that. Um, everybody, please be sure to go check out Slapface. It is available on Shutter. Please go check out Jeremiah. Where can people find you? Well, I'm pretty active on social media. Uh, if people want to find out about the movie, uh, Slapface Film on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, Slapface Feature Film on um, Facebook. If you want to find out, like, there's also a Slapface Short Film, but that is a couple years old now. Uh, and then my name is pretty easy to find, you know, so if you just type in Jeremiah Kip on Facebook or Instagram, I'm uh, an active film enthusiast on both of those. So uh, certainly, uh, uh, like and follow and uh if you have any questions the door is always open awesome i'll be sure to put links in the show notes so that way people can just swipe over and click on those and that's kip k-i-p-p thank you so much jeremiah yeah. this was such a pleasure to get the chat with you yeah it was such a joy thank you